All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Federalism, the electoral college, state governments, the federal government. We have all of this separation of power written into our constitution and certain com concepts that have informed the founding of the United States and have pretty much served us for the last 200 plus years. But more and more now, a lot of these institutions are being called into question. Everything from the filibuster to the electoral college to the Senate to the federalism in general. So here's the question that we're going to answer today. Are these just outdated concepts or are they critical to maintaining a free republic? I'm Nick Freitas and this is Making the Argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Now, as a state legislator, I get this question a lot. Everything from the Electoral College to federalism to the idea of state power versus federal power. And I, I, I want to relate to you a quick story that I had where I was talking to a student. And this student was actually very upset that the president, who was, who was Joe Biden, uh, was basically obstructed in what he was trying to do. And she was defending the president's need to issue a whole host of executive orders because after all, Congress was standing in the way of the will of the people. Now, I pointed out that, well, actually that really wasn't true because when we elect a president, we don't just elect a president to have carte blanche power to do whatever they want. We elect them to be the head of the executive branch of government, and that has certain powers and responsibilities. It also has certain limitations and restrictions on power. And she found this very frustrating, and, and she was really questioning this idea of everything, and not just the filibuster, but this whole idea that Congress was able to essentially stand in the way and, and prevent the president from doing what needed to be done. And so I asked the simple question, okay, would you felt the same way when Donald Trump was president? And all of a sudden it went a little bit quiet. And, and this is part of the overall understanding that I think both sides of the argument need to have with respect to limitations on federal power. But more and more, I'm, I'm seeing all of these different, um, you, you saw it in, in California after the 2016 presidential uh, results where you know, people were coming forward and, and really questioning the electoral college. Right, because after all, President Trump didn't win the popular vote, but he won the electoral vote. And, and the question was, is like, is this outdated? And that's going to take us into what, what is some of the, the left wing arguments when it comes to either questioning institutions like the filibuster, like the Electoral College, like the United States Senate, or just federalism and the separation of powers in general? Like, what are some of the arguments that they use in order to push back against some of these either rules or institutions, which we've relied upon for, for quite a bit of time? 
So the first one is, is this idea that the, the whole federalist concept, right? The idea of strong state powers and limited and enumerated powers of the federal government is somewhat outdated or outmoded. You get the same argument with respect to the electoral college, right? That, okay, maybe at the founding, um, you know, in, in, the, in the late 1700s, where we were a nation of, you know, you know, 12 to 15 million people and communications wasn't as good and, and very few people had access to the level of information that we do today. Maybe at that point, this whole concept of something like the Electoral College or concepts like, uh, you know, very limited federal power, maybe it made sense then, but it doesn't make sense now. And, and so you'll, you'll start to see the shift on where people's expectations lie with respect to government intervention into their lives, right? So for a, a, most of our history, going up into the, we'll say the, the 19th century and even, even some parts of the early 20th century, there was this idea that the federal government had a certain role to play within society, but a lot of decisions, in fact, most of the decisions that affected your day-to-day -day life, that was something that was gonna be handled by the, you know, the state government, uh, at most, but, but usually your local government. And so it was this idea that whatever governing body was going to be kind of most intrusive to day-to-day -day decisions that would affect your life would also be closest to the people. And so that's your, that's your local board of supervisors, your town council, your school board, whatever it was, whatever sort of political arrangement at the local level. And then next it would go up to the state level, right? And, and you see this actually discussed within the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers when people were determining whether or not they were, where states were determining whether or not they would ratify the federal constitution and actually create the federal government. There was a lot of discussion on what the federal government's powers were versus what the state government's powers were. And it was this idea that, well, states uh, had, a, had a lot of authority with respect to their own constitutions and with respect to their own powers on what they could do at the state level, the federal government was extremely limited on what it could do. And a lot of the arguments that I see right now on saying on, on why we should expand federal powers, this idea that one, as the United States as a whole, that there's certain principles that we should all agree on as Americans. And so therefore, the federal government has to have the authority to be able to impose those things. Because after all, we've seen situations in the past where states have had laws that either infringe on people's individual liberty or directly targeted people based off of their race. And those are bad. And so we have to have a strong federal government that comes in and ensures that those sort of liberties are, are uniform across the country, right? That, that's actually a pretty powerful argument. And one that I think many people agree with on some level. But now it's been used to actually push a whole host of other things, whether it's through federal spending or federal taxing authority or their interstate commerce clause or OSHA, you know, all of these different things that all of a sudden people are a lot more comfortable with the federal government having powers that they have never previously possessed. And that leads them to say that, well, you know, federalism, again, might have been a good idea where we didn't live in a technology age, right? We didn't live in an information age where literally anybody with now a couple, you know, strokes of the keyboard can get access to information that our founders could have never dreamed of. And so now we have the ability to put experts in a position where they have access to all kinds of information and they, they can analyze that information and then they can develop policies that will affect all of us. And yeah, there's always gonna be like intransigent elements within society that will push back against genuine progress, but that's why we need a strong federal government in order to give those experts access to the data and the information that they need and then the legislative and executive authority that they need in order to uh, push the sort of policies that are gonna help all of us, right? So that's kind of like the, the technological or practicality side that sometimes the left makes with respect to why certain systems of federalism or separation of powers is, is outdated. 
Uh, it's also one of the reasons why you see such a shift to the executive branch, whether that's executive orders or whether that's um, you know just just the enormous side of the administrative state. When you look at, at all of these different federal agencies, and most people have, have grown to just kind of expect that this is how the federal government always operated. Like a lot of people don't understand that the Department of Education is fairly new. Like we didn't even have a Department of Education until 1979. Right. And that department has doesn't seem to have to justify its existence with better scores or, or better educational results. It's just it's there. And the idea that we wouldn't have a federal department of education seems strange to people now because it, it's just, you know, it's got a 78 billion dollar budget. And of course, it's there to help with education. But but that's that's one argument. That's the practical argument with now that we have access to all this information. Why shouldn't we centralize power in the hands of the federal government and maybe specifically more power in the hands of a president that can then, you know, execute? It's this man of action concept of being able to get all the data and then make the policies that help everybody. Right. That's one argument. Another argument is this idea that things like the Electoral College or the United States Senate are undemocratic, right? So they're, they're essentially making an argument for democracy, right? And, and it's this automatic assumption that uh, democratic processes are automatically morally superior to their alternatives. Now, here's what's interesting about that, right? Because superficially, that sounds very plausible. I mean, obviously, when it comes to selecting who's going to represent us or who's going to make laws, we tend to prefer democratic processes, right? We want people to be engaged in the process and having a say over who represents them and who's going to make the laws, right? That all makes sense to us. And so people will look at that and they'll say, well, okay, how is it fair that Wyoming with, you know, 550,000 people gets two senators and California with 35 million people gets two senators? Like, how is that fair? Now, the typical conservative response to this is, well, okay, yeah, but the House of Representatives, you know, is, is you know, California has like 55 Congress people, whereas Wyoming has like one, right? So that, that's where the balance is made up. And but again, they come back and they say, well, that that still makes the Senate undemocratic because it's giving smaller states with lower populations more of an edge in the overall uh, you know legislative body and the overall power that the legislature has, and it's, that strikes them as being undemocratic. Right. And, and so, again, that a lot of the conservative response to that is, well, OK, well, that's just the way it's set up. And and, you know, it was it was set up to try to protect states, you know, et cetera. Um, so, so those are the kind of the two arguments that you see against federalism or state powers or um, really separation of powers in general. And that's not to say that the people on the left want to completely get rid uh, of any separation of powers. I'm not making that claim. I'm just saying that they're a lot more comfortable with the centralization of power within federal hands and specifically within the executive branch um, uh, under the conditions that they prefer than people on the right tend to be. Now, that's not always true. You have some people on the right that love executive power when it's their guy in the White House. All right, but the, the larger argument that we're going to get into right now, the conservative argument, is, is going to be what is, a, what is an intellectually consistent argument for why, and what's the, what's the broader philosophical reasons for why things like the, the United States Senate, the Electoral College, federalism, separation of powers, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments to the Constitution, why do they exist? Okay, And here's one of, here's one of the frustrating things for me. <laughs> Um, a lot of times when I see conservatives arguing for these things, I see really bad arguments. And I don't mean bad in the sense that there isn't an element of, of academic or, um, 
you know, philosophical truth to what they're saying. But the problem is, is that they're not addressing the accusations that the left is making in an effective way. And so what it looks like to a lot of people on the outside that are watching this debate between progressives and conservatives with respect to separation of powers is it looks like conservatives are doing just what the name implies, right? We're conserving something because it's old and it's traditional and we like it and, and you know, we're, we're afraid of any of the other arguments that are coming in. So we just pretty much push back against anything that might sound new or dangerous, right? And, and so it, it, it makes the progressive side look like they're being more innovative, that they're more open to necessary changes as a result of technological advancement or as a result of society becoming more uh, egalitarian or democratic. And it looks like we're just we're just hunkering down in our bunker. Right. And so you'll see these arguments for, well, we, you know, we have to have states rights. And a lot of time when conservatives talk about states rights, what people automatically hear is, oh, wait a second. Wasn't that the same argument that was being made by a bunch of, you know, Jim Crow states that didn't want to advance voting rights to black Americans, right? So automatically, when you start using that argument, even if, even if philosophically it's correct with respect to the term states' rights, a lot of times people have associated that term with something that we don't mean when we're advocating for the Tenth Amendment, right? Or we're advocating for enumerated powers of the federal government. And so if you, if you just come out there and assume that when you talk about the 10th Amendment or states' rights, that people are going to hear that or interpret it the way you intend, you're going to run into problems. And you're going to see this a lot because of the way a lot of people have been educated with respect to those arguments uh, for federalism or for states' rights. Um, another, thing that they'll, another thing that I'll see conservatives do is they'll just automatically reference the founding fathers. And they'll say, well, you know, again, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, Patrick Henry you know, whoever else, these are smart guys. They set it up that way. And again, it's that, it's that kind of almost traditional conservative argument where we're conserving it because it's our tradition, but we've lost the ability to actually explain why the tradition exists in the first place. And what this also does is it provides the left a mechanism to come in and say, oh, you mean James Madison, the slave owner? You mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the person that didn't want women to vote, right? Even if that's not true, that's, that's the way that they think about these things. And so once again, what it looks like is that you are holding on to something that is undemocratic for the sake of being undemocratic or for uh, the reasons of not wanting certain people that the left associates with marginalized groups being able to participate in the electoral, the political process, right? So it's really important that when we pick the terms that we use for arguing for separation of powers, for federalism, that we're, we're not starting off our argument in such a way to where the other side is no longer even willing to listen to us or somebody that was initially willing to listen to us doesn't think that we're capable of making a coherent or intellectually uh, honest and consistent argument. All right, so this all begs the question of how should we make the argument? And here's the part where I think you're going to find this interesting. Um, because the reason why like someone like me believes in the importance of maybe the Electoral College or the, the presence of the United States Senate, where we have a body where states are represented equally regardless of population, or the fact that we have very enumerated powers for Congress, and I, and I want um, Congress to stay within those boundaries, and I want the executive branch to be significantly reduced in its overall scope and ability to in, in, you know, um, impose its will on the entire country. The reason why I want this, the primary reason, and this, this part will, <laughs> when, when, you, when you word it this way, this part will kind of blow a progressive's mind because they never thought about this. The primary reasons why I like federalism and separation of powers, tolerance and diversity. <laughs> and again, as soon as you say that, they, they don't know how to react because those are their words. 
right? You're just a, you're just a conservative. You're just protecting traditional norms. You're not interested in tolerance and diversity. Well, no, that, that's actually one of the primary reasons why we have separation of powers and federalism. It's, it really is a question of tolerance and diversity because one of the things that the founders understood is they looked back on previous republics. And there was this idea that as, as you looked at republics, whether it was everything from like de more democratic states like the Greek city-states or it was Venice or it was these small republics, there was this idea that a republic could not expand beyond a certain size. Because the more people you got into, the larger geographical area, the more differences there were with respect to the concerns that populations were facing. And so the, the centralized body that was governing it was no longer able to effectively do so. And even if you had a 51% majority saying that they wanted to do something, well, you know, that 51% was now speaking for regions of the republic that either we're not dealing with the same situations or the, the so-called solution that was now being imposed from the centralized power actually hurt them. And so there was this, there was this questioning within certain elements of a larger republic that say, well, why are we even associated with this group if it's no longer effectively representing our interests? We could do better on our own. And, and you led to fractionalization within the republic as a result. And so one of the things that our founders were trying to do with the whole concept of, of states and a federal government instead of a national government. And by very, very defined enumerated powers for the federal government, it was actually trying to be respectful of the idea that different people living in different areas um, with different geographical concerns, different um, you know, weather concerns that might have affected agriculture or determined whether or not you're going to be more of an agricultural-based economy or an industrial-based economy, um, different cultural norms that, that rose up as a result of the immigrant populations that you had in different areas of the country. They were trying to respect that. And the way they were respecting that was by saying, look, different states have different priorities. And so when it comes to those issues that are the most invasive into your personal lives, or have the most effect on how you raise your children or educate your children or run your business or engage in commerce, um, those really should be handled more at a state level or it should be reserved to the people themselves to, to figure out through voluntary cooperation within society or the marketplace. And, and it should not be something that the federal government does because even at that time, the priorities of New England were very, very different than the priorities of, of South Carolina or Georgia. And so in, in order to ensure that we were respecting those cultural and geographical and, and economic differences, we limited the central power, the centralized government's power to make decisions that would be the most invasive, right? So it really was about tolerance and diversity, understanding diversity and being tolerant of the different um, ways in, in, that you solve problems in different areas, right? Or, or recognizing the problems might even be completely different. And even if you do have a unified problem, there might be regional solutions to it that make more sense based off of where you're at. Okay, now, obviously, they still gave the federal government some power because they recognized that there were certain things that should be universal, like providing for a common defense is something that is very clearly a responsibility of the federal government. I think you could definitely make the argument with things like, you know, the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution that we wanted to be a nation which, which truly embraced the concept uh, found in the Declaration of Independence, namely that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and, and the pursuit of happiness. So it was this idea that, you know, an institution like slavery or denying um, 
denying enfranchisement of the vote to certain people uh, based off of race or sex was was immoral. It went against the the absolute moral fiber of the principles which established the country, right? So those things kind of made sense. But what you'll notice about that is that when we've when we've expanded um, you know certain concepts of you know principles which were universal around the country. It didn't actually expand federal power as much as what it did was um, it, it embrace the idea of, of individual liberty and enfranchisement for all Americans, right? So, the, so that's the that's the first point: tolerance and diversity, right? That was, and again, you use that argument to to, to uh, argue, and it and it is it is it is the foundational reason why we have separation of powers, federalism, those concepts. What's another one? The other one had to do with understanding the nature of power. And this addresses a little bit more of, of the left-wing argument when it comes to um, democratic processes, their, their critique of, of, dem, or of what they consider to be anti-democratic processes, or the idea that federalism is outdated because in the information age, it's much easier to come up with information. So even if, I, even if I'm not from California, and even if I'm making decisions on behalf of California, well, I still have all this data from California that I can use in order to make wise policy decisions, so why shouldn't we centralize more of that control? And, and this is what I call the, the um, absolute power corrupts absolutely argument, right? That old Lord Acton quote. Part of the reason for federalism was not just the idea that, well, you know, the, the experts or the centralized government can't have access to as much information or, or communication is much slower. It really was about dispersing power. It, it was a, a lack of trust over the idea that a centralized power will always govern not only effectively and efficiently, but they will actually always govern morally. It was the idea that if you give people enough power, if you give enough centralization of power, then there is this temptation to corrupt it. And so federalism was not just about a, a lack of access to information. It was about overwhelming evidence throughout human history that if you put a great deal of power in the hands of relatively few people, it, it tends to have a corrupting influence. So federalism was there to, to disperse that power in order to prevent the over-centralization and ultimate corruption of power. Right, so that that's one of the that's one of the reverse that's one of the arguments you use against this idea that well federalism was was more of a, a practical consideration with respect to access to information. Actually, it was very much a practical consideration, not just for access to information. It was a practical consideration for concern over the corrupting nature of power. And then that goes into the other one, right? The understanding the nature of decision making or problem solving. So, um, like we said before, the left sometimes makes this argument that because we have so much, because we, we can get so much more data, then the experts can make better decisions and we should push them out there. Um, another thing that federalism does and separation of powers does is it recognizes that no matter how much data a particular expert has, um, or group of experts, they're still carrying into that decision-making process certain biases and certain assumptions based off of what p other people want. And so one of the reasons why we have a Ninth Amendment and a Tenth Amendment is not just to ensure that more power stays at a state level or more importantly at an individual level is because ultimately, while we may agree that we all want enough food to eat or we all want a place to live or we all want clothes to wear or we all want access to medicine, the sort of food we want, the sort of housing we want, the sort of clothing we want, the sort of health care that we need, that is incredibly different based off of the individual that you're talking to. Not to mention the fact that the individual's ability to go in and exchange within the marketplace and to be able to uh, both contribute and receive benefit from those transactions is very, very diverse. 
And, and people have their own preferences with respect to the things that they want and the things that they want to do in exchange for the things that they want. So even if an expert can come to the conclusion that, yes, everybody wants access to food, they're, they're lost when it comes to trying to ascertain what 300 million individual Americans may prefer for dinner that night. So what's the best way to address that? Well, what we found is the best way to, to meet individual needs is not through a um, is not through a corporate or collective democratic process where 51% of the population gets to decide what 100% of the population will get. What we found is the most responsive and conducive to a free society and to really a tolerant society is allow each individual to make decisions within the marketplace. And so they, they have a, a far better opportunity to get the things that they want based off of their individual preferences, not by imposing their will on somebody else, but rather by looking for ways to serve their fellow human beings, right? Now they can, they can benefit themselves while at the same time benefiting others. And that's what you see within the exchange, within the free market, within the marketplace of not only ideas, but the marketplace of goods and services. But if you essentially say, we're going to allow a centralized authority to make more of the decisions. Well, every decision you give to that centralized authority, you take out of the hands of individuals. And not only do you lose all the creativity and the innovation, but now you also create a situation where the people that would have worked voluntarily in order to meet each other's needs, wants, and demands are, are now no longer focused on serving one another. And they're now focused on how do I get my person elected to that centralized power so I can either get what I want or protect what I have? And, and how am I gonna get what I want? By taking it from somebody else. How am I gonna protect what I have? By preventing someone else from taking it. And all of a sudden the stakes become very, very high on being involved not in the marketplace of ideas and goods and services, but being you know, inordinately focused on the acquisition and maintenance of political power so that you can, you know, either either protect or aggressively take, right? So when when we look at those three things, right? Let's let's do a recap of this. So a lot of the more progressive arguments against federalism, separation of powers, and some of the institutions that we have to maintain that is is focused around either a they're undemocratic, or b they're they're inefficient. Right? So they're undemocratic in the sense that it's not fair that Wyoming has the same amount of power in the Senate that California does. And it's, it's not efficient in the effect that what we're doing is we're, limiting, we're, we're uh, limiting the power of these central authorities to be able to make decisions to, quote, help all of us. Right? And, and our, our three responses back to that, right? the first one that we want to make is the whole tolerance and diversity idea. It's the idea that Californians don't necessarily want to live the same way Texans want to live. So it's much more tolerant to allow Texans to make decisions at a local level for Texans and Californians at a local level for Californians, right? That, that's actually respecting tolerance and diversity instead of insisting upon or mandating uniformity across the board. So that's the first argument. The second argument deals with the whole concept of this undemocratic uh, notion, right? It's the reason why we have separation of powers, the reason why we don't allow for more centralized control is not just because, um, it, it, it's not because we're against democratic processes in general, it's because we understand what happens by looking at human history when we have a concentration of power in the hands of relatively few people, it tends to corrupt. Right? And then that third argument has to do with the whole idea of efficiency of problem solving. So again, if, if their argument is 
when, now that we live in the information age and all these experts can have the power, well, then let, let's give them the political power to implement the policies that they want. Our response to that is, well, wait a second, I don't care how much data this group of experts have, they still don't understand the unique needs, wants, and desires of 300 million people. And so people actually taking care of their own interests seems to produce better results on the whole than just putting all of those decisions in the hands of a group full of experts, not just for efficiency reasons, but also for moral reasons because we don't want society to break down into a contest of controlling political strings in order to impose our will on somebody else. What we want is a free environment where the, the different governing bodies stay within their proper constitutional limitations. We emphasize and we advance individual liberty and human freedom, and then we allow people to be able to meet their individual preferences within the marketplace where you have to you serve yourself by serving others. Right? You don't serve yourself by acquiring political power in order to impose your will on others. All right, so I, I hope you found that helpful. Uh, once again, as you're looking through these arguments, there, there's a reason why we, we talk about what the kind of the progressive argument is and we try to make a, a good, legitimate argument. Right? I'm not just trying to caricature what they're saying. I'm, I'm trying to you know, give to you some of the arguments that I have had people on the left make to me with respect to their position. And then we're trying to talk about, again, some of the bad conservative arguments, because one of the things that is so damaging to our side is when I see a conservative who means well, but makes a really, really bad argument. And then finally wrapping it up with those ones. If you like that format, please like, comment, share, subscribe, and leave us some comments letting us know if you find this helpful. We've had a lot of people tell us that they've incorporated some of our, our, uh, our episodes into their homeschooling curriculum. I mean, that means a, a great deal to me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. But Please leave us your feedback, both on, on the format that we're using. You also notice it's a little bit different today. I'm very pleased to announce that because of you know, the, our subscribership and the people that have been you know, watching this and sharing it with others, we're actually going to be moving to a new studio, so we look forward to setting that up. Uh, but in the meantime, we are dedicated to continue to put out Making the Argument two times a week, just like we have, and maybe one day in the future we'll be able to expand it. Who knows? Once again, I'm Nick Freitas from Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.